Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. This podcast contains frank discussions about the body, sexuality, and occasionally uses swear words, which may not be appropriate for people under the age of 18. This podcast also uses facts, statistics, and mathematics, which may not be appropriate for liberal arts majors. And this podcast relies on science and reality, which may not be appropriate for evangelicals. Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. You are here with your host, Auntie Vice, and I'm thrilled to be back. Dahlia Kinsey, she's an inclusive wellness specialist, and I reached out because when I started digging into her work, it is exactly what Fat Chicks is all about. So we have a great conversation ahead today. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. When I started digging into your site, a lot of it is around decolonizing uh, diets, decolonizing wellness. So it's been a couple of years since I've done an explicit episode on decolonizing wellness. So let's just talk about what that means. Yeah. So when some people use the term decolonize, they're talking more in terms of land back and trying to undo some of the damage, make things right with all of the unseated, basically the theft that went on during colonization, which is a different subject. And I feel like it's very involved. But when I'm using it in relation to wellness, it's really about stopping white supremacy as a concept, which goes in hand in hand with colonization, settler colonization, stopping white supremacy from defining what it means to be well, and stopping cis hetero supremacy from defining what it means to be well. Because so much of even what we think of as normal in terms of gender and binary gender really became popular, spread all over the globe during colonization. Because there are plenty of cultures all over the world that have never dealt with gender in a binary way. So some homophobia, in my experience, really is an import. And when you're trying to take care of yourself, accept yourself and trust your body. Being socialized in a world that has a body hierarchy in place that we've inherited from the process of colonization that puts cis, white, het, middle to upper class men at the top of the hierarchy and everybody else under that is less and less and less valuable. It really influences your ability to trust yourself and believe that what comes natural to you is correct. So I see working through mental blocks and internalized stigma as a big part of what it takes to be well if you are a marginalized person and you weren't born at the top of this body hierarchy that's become so popular (laughs) around the globe. And this is a fairly new approach to wellness in the United States. How 
you probably got in at a time before people were especially going through uh, school and stuff before they were talking about how a white supremacy patriarchy influences wellness. So how did you come into this? Really through lived experience of being let down countless times by existing resources for self-care. I have Graves' disease, which is an autoimmune condition that affects my thyroid. So I need to be gentle with myself across the board, um, looking out for stress, looking out for physical stress, and all that was out there when I was looking for help, trying to manage my health problem and stay in remission. Never mind, just getting care initially was a shit show because of all of the assumptions people make about people in larger bodies and people who are femme presenting and people who have brown skin. And I am all of those things. Generally, people don't believe fat people. It's chronic. Uh, Even I was looking at an article the other day and prep for a workshop I have to do. And it talked about the body double for Gwyneth Paltrow and Shallow Howe, explaining that she suffered from eating disorders and just a lot of harm after being used in that role. And anyone who remembers that movie, terrible, fat phobic, disgusting movie. Um, of course, of course she did. But the way it was phrased, and this article was dated 2023, it said, actress claims. Well, why do you phrase it that way? What are you talking about? That's what happened, okay? But there is this pattern of not believing certain kinds of people. And so when I go into a doctor appointment and I give my symptoms, I'm dealing with multiple things. One, especially when my weight fluctuates and I'm in a larger body, people think I'm lying about my food diary, I'm lying about exercising, I'm just lying, uh, that I'm going to be non-compliant, that I'm lazy. And then when they see black skin, the assumption typically also is this person is ignorant and undereducated. Um, they're going to need help the way you may help a child. And even people who would never let those words come out of their mouth, you can tell based on how you're treated that this is pretty much the global assumption because of how people have been socialized. We've all been exposed to so many negative messages about people who aren't cis, white, het, thin, able-bodied, middle to upper class. Like the message is literally everywhere. So if you were born before 2020, 2020, I would say, born before 2020, and you were exposed to this throughout media the whole time you were coming up in North America. I mean, I've even traveling abroad when I was a teenager, I was born in 81. So when I was traveling as a teenager in Eastern and Western Europe, people constantly had trouble believing that I was from America because they had been watching American films for years. And the way Black people had such tiny parts, sidekicks only, so few It's understandable why people who didn't live in America thought that the Black population in the U.S. was extremely small. Even I've met 
Africans who moved to the Atlanta area who told me they were shocked when they got to the airport. They're like, what is happening? They said they didn't know we were still here. They had heard a little bit about America's history with kidnapping, enslaving people, trafficking people, but they thought somehow maybe we'd all left based on the lack of representation in the media. So what does it do to never see yourself represented? You never see a person of size being presented as desirable. And in that nasty movie, Shallow Hell, it was presented like it was a joke that anyone could be sexually attracted to a fat person, which is obviously ridiculous. All kinds of bodies are beautiful. And then also beauty is not an obligation. So just dealing with the way sexism influences how your physician may not listen to you when you go in with your symptoms, seeing how long it took me to be diagnosed. It's a health condition that if not treated, it can be fatal. And it's nauseating to know how much money I spent trying to seek out care. And they almost let me die. And I don't get those copays back and I'll get that time off had to take to go to those appointments back. And I ha- ha- was in a privileged position to be able to take so much time off to try and figure out what was going on with me. So just being let down repeatedly in massive ways, um, going through the process of becoming a dietitian and hearing how much racism is baked into research. I basically came to this conclusion on my own. And then it just makes sense that, of course, racism is real. But I still have people asking me if I've ever experienced any kind of racism or stigma. That's how much of a different story people who aren't being racialized are being given, that they would ask that question and not think it's a ridiculous and bizarre question. Um, but before we were able to actually film people abusing us, nobody believed it because, again, people have been socialized to not believe marginalized people. So you have to provide receipts. If there was not footage of George Floyd being murdered, people would still be saying they're not really sure he didn't have to be murdered. Like they're not really sure that he didn't bring it on himself. So just growing up through the eighties and the nineties, when there was no footage and there were no dash cams. And even in hindsight, if you look at what happened to Rodney King, that's like a formative experience from my youth and seeing how this man's body was broken. His mind was broken by the extreme stress of being subjected to a racist attack and not just the initial attack being traumatic, the nation's response to it. Like maybe you deserve it. Um, And again, who cares about black and brown bodies? Uh, (laughs) Not that many people, according to my experience. So just seeing all that, of course, healthcare providers are also compromised. Of course, the person who runs the yoga studio in your city is also compromised. If people don't intentionally do work to try and find where all of that bias has landed in their consciousness to try and uproot it or to at least develop a practice of questioning it, like where did that thought come from? Why do I suddenly feel so compelled to lock my door when a black person whose hands are full and they've got groceries walks past my car, like things that happen to me all the time. And I'm only five, four. I don't know what people think I'm going to do. And then it's even funnier when it's somebody who's just like in 
just an unappealing vehicle. I'm like, I don't think anybody's trying to snatch that buddy, but whatever, whatever. Um, it just becomes obvious when you're seeing it constantly. And going through the stress of 2020, I said, I just don't feel comfortable anymore. It's not worth it to me to keep playing down my marginalized identities to make other people comfortable, thinking that somehow it's going to make me safer. Because that's generally what you're told growing up is that assimilation is the key. Assimilation is protection. In the same way that people demand people of size keep acting like weight loss is their primary concern. Like it's a way of playing the game and assimilating even when your body doesn't fit what is put out there as the ideal is to keep telling everybody, oh, but I wish, I just wish I could be more like you. And when people get really hostile and mad is when you say, actually, your bigotry is a problem. There's nothing wrong with my body. And it felt like the most ridiculous and bizarre thing in 2020 that I almost had to come out as black. It's like people forget when you don't fit the stereotypes that they're used to. They assume that that means you're completely assimilated and detached from your blackness. Like I have been told countless times in my lifetime and people thought this was a compliment, but this is a microaggression <laughs> that I was just not really that black. Or no, no, you're not really black. You know, not like you. Like, I don't like black people, but you're fine. I love you. That's not a sweet thing to say. That's disgusting. So just dealing with all of that and then going to healthcare settings where no one's going to come right out and say, I wish I didn't have to serve people your size. I wish I didn't have to serve people your color or your orientation, but they communicate that in so many other ways, it just started to jump out at me that this is an issue that needs to be addressed for me to take care of myself and for me to offer care to other people who've had a similar experience. I think your experience will resonate both with the listeners and is so in line with so many other folks I've interviewed on the show. There's a lot in there that I want to touch on. So Let's start with just getting a diagnosis as a femme presenting woman that is an autoimmune disease because autoimmune diseases are notoriously hard for doctors to diagnose, even though they shouldn't be. Right. I, right. I have both systematic lupus and systematic scleroderma, and it took seven years before anybody believed what I was saying. Mm -hmm. And it's so frustrating. So you've actually gone through medical training and not formal, you know, med school like an MD, but you, you, your dietitian training. And so let's talk a little bit about the education and what leads so many in healthcare to disregard bigger bodies and femme bodies. So when you were doing all the work to become a registered dietitian, what was the representation of marginalized bodies in your work? Abby, it was really next to no one in, in the actual classroom. I went to a school that marketed itself as urban, which is usually code for there'll be brown people here when you get here. And it was true initially. And then to get into the dietetic program, it's a separate application process. And I remember the first day of a class that you could only 
register for that class once you've been accepted into the program. I just felt like the air had been sucked out of the room when I walked in because it went from, you know, a room full of international students from all over the world, all kinds of ethnicities in every class to wall to wall, middle class looking, thin white girls. That's it. That's it. There was one lesbian in my entire cohort. Um, and she was very similar to her peers and she'd known some of them for a while. So she was still totally accepted as part of that clique. And because her gender presentation was binary, uh, that was also an aid for her. If this was like 10 years prior, maybe the homophobia would have been a real issue for her. But I'm still even wondering if the homophobia wasn't a big issue because they actually knew her. You know how sometimes then even backwards towns, people will still be accepting of a person because they know that individual person, but they could still have a lot of homophobia going on. And beyond that, they all seem to be in the same social class. Almost everybody. I can think of one person who had some markers that you could clock right away of not being middle class. And I could see she was ostracized. She wasn't really part of the clique. So she was white and thin. That wasn't enough. <laughs> she didn't cut the mustard class-wise. And as far as people of size, no one, literally no one. And I was considered overweight by their standards. And even though the BMI is trash and was never meant to be used to like evaluate an individual person's health status, my BMI at the time was in what is considered a normal range, but that still was not the norm. Like everybody was just on the lower side of the BMI. Some of them looked like they just barely had started recovering from eating disorders. And some people did disclose that they were in recovery. Most of them claimed they were fully recovered, but I find it very convenient to go into a field where food obsession is part of your job, what a perfect way to cover that you are not in recovery. <laughs> like it's, it's pretty transparent. So in my experience, the overwhelming majority of the folks I studied with were disordered eaters and they preferred restriction and they were in no way interested in other cultural groups. They tried to explain to us how to work with diverse folks, which for them was always code for brown people. Um, and like one chapter with like a list of these are the things that African Americans eat, or sometimes it'd even be more vague. Like these are the things that black people eat. There was, well, there were three other, I'm counting myself. There was three of us total, slightly brown people. And one of them didn't even identify as a person of color because she recently had moved to the United States and in the country she came from, she was considered white. Because once again, race is not really real. It's a social construct. So she's self-identified as white. She just was identifying as a foreign person, which was accurate. And then there, basically none of the black folks had anything in common food culture wise. So we would ask when you say this is what black people eat, who are you talking about? And we have one person from Ghana, one person from the Dominican Republic, and then myself, I'm half Cuban, half Jamaican. 
So none of us eat the same thing, but they kept saying all black people eat the same thing. And they had in like this neat little list. And then when they were making assumptions, when we would go over research showing poor health outcomes for black people living in the United States, they would keep blaming it on the individual saying like these folks are making poor choices. And what I heard between the lines is these people are too stupid to even feed themselves. And I just kept feeling every day. I cannot believe I am coming up here paying to be insulted constantly. And this obviously isn't even true. Like this isn't accurate. And when I would try and contribute information, knowing more about black people than they do, because hello, I've been being a black person since birth. Everyone would just ignore it. Like somehow I couldn't be an authority on this subject because again, people don't believe marginalized people. And then also not understanding that if it takes like seven years for someone to get a PhD or eight years, then what am I in terms of what it means to be a black person? If I've been doing this at the time for 25 or 27 years, but now I think I get it. Like I know more about it than you do. You read a book about it, you write a paragraph. I even had people try to explain to me because they had volunteered at some homeless shelter with a lot of black people that they understood black people inside and out now. I'm like, okay, cool. But what do I have in common with the folks that are unhoused, what, what, what's the through line? And what makes you think that because these people had a very different experience from me, that now you get everyone's experience? Like, how are you not getting it? I mean, it was just constant, um, the ignorance and the refusal to be even curious about letting go of that ignorance. You know, it was... It was honestly, it was a traumatic experience trying to complete the process. And by the time I graduated, I didn't even know if I wanted to enter such a nasty, toxic field. I'm like, if these are my peers, uh, you're going to have to count me out. I know a couple of the Black people in the program did decide firmly, I cannot work in environments like this. It's not worth it to me. And it's not an extremely high-paying field because of the patriarchy, but also because of who enters the field. It's almost all middle to upper-class white women who are straight, who don't have any plans to survive off of their salary. So there isn't much of a push for an improvement in wages and even from older dietitians who were trying to push for medical reimbursement back in the day, they said they couldn't get any buy-in because once again, these were all people who essentially went to school for their MRS who didn't care anything about reimbursement. This was just like a degree they could have so that they looked like a better option for some kind of cishet union that they were trying to get themselves into. And so, so many people still do not respect dietetics the way that they respect other services provided by healthcare providers because they're not always reimbursable. When you are in a country that doesn't have universal healthcare, insurance really communicates to people like what is a legit medical service and what is considered Not that alternative treatments are not legit because they 100% are, but so many people, you know, only want to recognize certain kinds of healing modalities. And typically those more mainstream North American modalities 
are going to be reimbursable and you can use your insurance to get them. And thanks to these people not being even a little bit interested in liberation, honestly, even for themselves as heterosexual white women, they missed the boat. Yeah, there's some medical nutrition therapy, you know, things that are reimbursable thanks to those few people who kept pushing for it. But still, I don't really think anybody thinks that people value dietetics the way that they value, let's say, dentistry or something like that, or even chiropractic work. It's not seen on the same level. And it is routinely downplayed by by physicians by nurse practitioners and all whoever you're seeing as a primary care physician often it's kind of a a toss out and yeah if you have some coverage maybe go talk to somebody but and a lot of that for bigger body folks for marginalized body folks the desire to see a dietitian is low like when i was trying to get diagnosed you know i'm queer i'm non-binary yeah, I'm bigger bodied and my um my PCP was like, well, why you know, you want to see a, a nutritionist? And I was in Napa in California at the time. I'm like, can you point to one who hasn't just covered up their eating disorder and turned it into a career? And exactly. she couldn't think of one. There you go. There you go. <laughs> like, and I understand that so many of us have disordered eating quirks, you know, that maybe we haven't gotten all the way to being diagnosed, or maybe because eating disorder care can be so hostile to certain folks, maybe you're never going to get diagnosed because you're not going to go down that road because you know how harmful it could be to you. I think you can still be in the process of getting well and working through your own stuff and be of help to other people, but not if you're in total denial about it. Not if you're going around encouraging people to engage in eating disorder type behaviors if you're of a certain size. If somebody over a certain weight comes in to a lot of dietitian offices talking about restricting, there's almost no chance that person will identify their restricting as problematic. Now you come in and your collarbones all popping out and pronounced, okay, well then, But what about the person who hasn't gotten that ill yet? Do you have to be half dead for somebody to intervene? And if so, well, any fool could provide that service. You could go to anybody. I'm sure by the time you're looking that ill and underweight, anyone in your life is saying it's time for help. So if you're actually a competent professional, you should be able to recognize problematic eating patterns, regardless of the size or color, orientation, or gender presentation of the person who's having those symptoms. But I would say the overwhelming majority of dietitians are not capable. And the training they received didn't make them any more capable. I know there are some people who are really pushing for change in the field but there's so much resistance by people who are in positions of power and who are basically setting the tone for what is the entire field being exposed to through the professional organization, that the change is very slow. You, you almost have to find a rogue dietitian. I, of course, I'm always biased in favor of all 
of um, other queer folks. Because if you're a queer person who has worked through your internalized homophobia and your dedicated deliberation, you have a gift, a hard-earned, okay, a hard-won gift for seeing BS and saying, oh, that's not true. That's not accurate. Mm, I don't know about that. How do they know that? Are they sure? I, of course, not everybody who's been oppressed becomes very interested in liberation work and becomes intersectional, but a lot of people do. And so I have been, I'm hopeful because I've met multiple queer and non, I'm non-binary too, so I'm always drawn to my peeps. Um, I've met people who really I would definitely trust them to give me care, to give other clients care. They're not fat phobic. They know how to hold space for people. They know that the client is the key to any successful therapeutic relationship. The client is at the center. They should be talking more than you're talking in any visit. They have so many answers inside themselves, but they probably don't believe that their answer is good enough. They don't trust it. They're used to providers not asking them to explain their life, their experience, and what they're feeling to them in the appointment. People usually just like heap suggestions on you and uh, printouts. And I just feel like even before AI became so accessible to everybody, there was still research that indicated there wasn't a big difference between health outcomes for somebody who saw a dietitian after a new nutrition-related diagnosis like type 2 diabetes or high blood pressure or whatever versus somebody who just got a handout from their primary care provider. That, I mean, that's pretty pitiful. Like You could either Google it or you could go to see someone who says they're a professional who may very well make you feel even worse about the body you currently live in, may make you feel hopeless about improving your symptoms if you're not able to force your body to be smaller. So no wonder, no wonder. <laughs> there, like you said, there's often low interest in going to see the dietitian. And this is one of my big peeves with the professional organization. I'm like, this says it all. There, I think it was four years ago, maybe, that the title went from, you could either just be called a registered dietitian when you get your license, or you can go with registered dietitian nutritionist because so few Americans know what a dietitian is. And people are always confused as to what is the difference between a dietitian and a nutritionist. But what a fail. The professional organization existed for a hundred years and failed to communicate to the nation what a dietitian is. I can't with them. <laughs> So one of the things you bring up is a lot of folks, especially if you're in a bigger body and you have disordered eating, they don't recognize the eating disorder. And uh, last season, we had Amani Barberin on the show. Uh, she goes by Crutches and Spice online. Amani is a disabled disability advocate. She has um, cerebral palsy, bigger body, black woman, and disordered eating for a very long time. But because she's bigger bodied and uses mobility aids, Nobody recognized the binging and purging, didn't even think to ask mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. So in your work, when people come to you and start talking about whatever issues they're having, especially if they're bigger bodied, how do you delve into what their eating habits are and where you need to go with therapeutic means? I really start with where are they experiencing distress and what made them come in? 
because chances are, if you're in a bigger body, you have a high level of nutrition knowledge because people have been making you feel like you should shrink your body or body's wrong for so long. You're more likely to have a long history of dieting. You're more likely to have looked at a million different plans over the years. Um, you're more likely to be afraid that things are going terribly wrong in your body because everybody makes it sound like having a fat body is a death sentence. So I go in with the assumption this person already knows more than they probably will ever need to know about nutrition. And, and I start with like, what do you know? What do you care about? What is your top priority? And I let them dictate where we're going to start. But my goal is always over time to up their confidence and their ability to decide how much food is right for them and what food is right for them. Also, a common thing is a lot of big people are restricting more than anybody would guess from looking at them because the story is, if your body's big, you are a glutton, which is an ugly, ugly thing to say. I should have given a warning before I even said that, but that is the assumption and it is very rarely true. A lot of people who do feel out of control around food and who binge a lot, it's a reaction to restriction and your body will push back really hard to make you eat through hormonal changes and through also like your brain will just get fixated on what you feel you're depriving yourself from or what is off limits. And then also I find a lot of people, their emotional state is influencing their desire for food. So food can be very soothing. It also can be a numbing tool. So if the world is treating you like trash because the world has decided they don't like the body that you have, which you, you can't just get out of it like that, it's the body that you're in, then you're likely going to have an emotional response to that. We're very social creatures. And when everybody's telling you you're unacceptable, you're unlovable, or your body is a literal joke, it's going to be a downer. Right. And you have to like build real tools to to deal with that and to push back against that. And not everybody has gone into therapy trying to work on that specifically because we've been told like we should be apologetic about our bodies. How dare we seek out help to be okay with our unacceptable bodies? So I go in assuming it's quite possible this person has got no support around dealing with the psychological distress that fat phobia causes, which is likely to make you want to numb, which could mean some people like to numb by eating so much that they feel like they can't feel anything. Some people will numb with restriction. And that's another thing that people don't understand. There are people who have high BMIs that have anorexia. You can have both. So not all larger folks who have an eating disorder or even have disordered eating, you know, patterns are using eating a lot to get that numb feeling. It could be either one. It could be, it could vary, you know, from one day to the next. So I really focus on trying to hear what the person is saying, making them feel as comfortable as possible so that they will come back because Usually, you're not going to feel safe right away with somebody. 
especially if you feel like this person maybe doesn't understand my experience. So if your BMI and the dietitian's BMI, if there's a big gap there, you may assume, and you may be right, that this person has no idea what it's like to be in a bigger body. They don't know how cruel people are, how rude, how disrespectful. They don't know how stressful it is. They don't know how annoying it is that, oh, if I say in our session, hey, why don't you go to the gym? That that means some idiot is going to say to you, good for you, like within the first five minutes of you getting there. Like they don't know how, they don't know how it is. So it's going to usually take a whole lot more than one hour for somebody to actually feel comfortable opening up. And you can't really get anywhere if you can't connect with the person that you're working with. And you really can't perform a miracle in in one session, unless that person's done a lot of work on their own and they're probably also in therapy with someone who is good at handling body image concerns and acknowledges this isn't like you imagining it. It really is stressful to deal with stigma all the time. And no matter how great your self-esteem, no matter how great your stress management, it still freaking sucks to be treated like a piece of trash because somebody has made being a bigot okay. So it's hard to find a therapist who gets that part, you know, because a lot of people will try and tell you, like, you just need to learn how to ignore it. That's a ridiculous suggestion. Suppressed emotions don't disappear. They just go to different parts of your body and make you sick slowly. As a lot of people know, I mean, I've heard the most, I say these are insane symptoms, but it's not insane because it's real and it's common. People will just randomly like start bleeding sometimes from stress. Also, you know, sometimes people drop dead from stress. I remember when my Graves disease started making my hair fall out and I didn't know how much had fallen out. And then I caught an angle in the mirror and I just felt like, like my heart just almost like dropped out my butt. You know, when you suddenly feel like so stressed out and you go, and then the next day I had head to toe eczema. At the beginning of the call, I was acting like, I don't know, I still have toddler skin problems. But the eczema thing, it does pop up periodically, but it's usually a stress response. But it's insane to me how quickly an emotional state can affect the physical body and how quickly negative suggestions can influence the body. But when you even think about the placebo effect, People will talk about it like, oh, it's this throwaway thing that confuses studies sometimes. But no, it is a real, normal human thing that what you think affects what your body does. So sometimes people will come in thinking, oh, I got to go on an elimination diet. Something's wrong. I'm, a, I'm allergic to this. I'm allergic to that. I'm sensitive to gluten. I'm this, I'm that, I'm the other. And what really happened was... People kept being told like food is scary, food is dangerous, and especially you in this big body, you can't trust. And it has gotten in that person's head and they don't trust food and they're more sensitive to it than they would be if they were told food is safe. If it makes you feel funny, you don't have to eat it again. We don't have to make a whole thing out of it. And I love that you bring up learning to trust your body because so many of us in bigger bodies and in marginalized bodies have been told you absolutely cannot trust your body, right? That right. That's a, 
I, I've had doctors literally say, don't trust what your gut's telling you. Let me tell you what, you know. And Isn't so, that funny that somebody, uh, they must have really believed that when they said that to you. Well, I've had, I, I have a very um, paradoxical reaction to albuterol, right? It's supposed to open up your lungs and make you breathe. It sends me into hysterics and hyperventilation. And Scary. so I tell doctors this, and when I've had problems breathing, they've insisted on administrating it. And I'm, I'm staying in your office, wow. and you can watch this. And they're like, well, that's not what your body's supposed to do. This is what this is what doesn't make sense. This is what doesn't make sense. And I feel like this is such a Western thing. That belief that research can tell you what is going to happen to each individual body that you come into contact with. What you learn when you do studies is what is true on average for most people. Like that's the whole point is to come up with a recommendation that will work for most people. There are always outliers. Like you know where your heart is. There is somebody out there whose heart is not located there. Like I had a friend, a childhood friend, who when we were around the age where everybody's starting their period, their period just didn't come, didn't come, didn't come. And the assumption is everybody who, when they go through puberty, grows breasts and gets the hips and everything and looks femme, everybody's got a uterus. That's the assumption. Guess what? Not everybody has a uterus. They put this friend on birth control to induce a period, was on it for years. It wasn't until they were in their early 20s that somebody finally said, you know what, let's just do like an ultrasound. Let's see what's going on there. I mean, why hasn't this worked yet? And then they're like, oh, huh, there's some uterus here. Can, can she get back all her money for all of those appointments and for all the time she spent on birth control for absolutely no reason? I don't even remember if there were ovaries there. The point is the period was never going to come. Okay, <laughs> because they didn't bother to do a thorough exam. And I can understand maybe when you first do an intervention, do the obvious thing. Because, yeah, a lot of folks who look like that, they do have a uterus. Fine. But when they come back in three months, nothing's happened. Would it kill you to do a thorough exam? And it it's insane to me how, well, and I think part of it is the way we establish, you know, our reimbursement system and our insurance system is most appointments you have 15 minutes and they slam you with as many patients as possible for as many billable hours as possible and so taking that extra time is discouraged um, Mm -hmm. or even penalized by by who you're with so when you're coming when clients are coming in and saying look i have all this stuff going on how do you even begin to get somebody to trust that their body can give them relevant information. It really is a slow process. It helps if that person is younger and hasn't had a lot of negative interactions with healthcare providers yet. And if they still kind of just assume this person does this for a living, I can trust them, I can believe them. Because some people, all you have to do is tell them it's true and they'll believe it right away. And that must be nice because I feel like at this age, most, you know, you and I don't have that option anymore. We're very skeptical whenever anybody tells us anything. You may consider it, you may hold it in the back of your head, but you're going to have to see some evidence that it's true. So sometimes people start to see evidence in 
hey, I trusted myself for a while and some of my symptoms have started to get better. But it's important to make sure, and this isn't always easy, that the client knows that there really is no guarantee that their weight will change and that we want to focus on the symptoms that are bothering them. So like if they're having GI problems or something, or like one of the symptoms for when you're in a flare with Graves' disease, one that can get you is hyperdefecation, which is exactly what it sounds like. You spend most of your day in the toilet. <laughs> so let's say you're trying to work with that symptom because you have like this high transit time, like super fast, I mean, transit time because of your illness. If you're focusing on that symptom and you just start paying attention to what you notice when you're eating certain foods and you see an improvement, then you will likely start to believe like, oh, I actually can do this on my own. Like my healthcare providers can be a guide and they're a support, but in the end, I'm getting a lot of information from my body. And when this therapeutic relationship ends, maybe your insurance only covers 10 appointments with the dietitian or maybe three. Sometimes I see three. You'll know that when it's over, I'm going to be okay because I know how to keep this experiment going. And then next year I can check back in or whatever. So I'm going to pick up on that just for a minute because with autoimmune diseases, my sister has Hashimoto's. Mm. I, I don't think that people who don't have these types of diseases understand how much you pay attention to pooping. Like, yeah. <laughs> when she and I finally both got diagnosed, at one point, I texted her and I said, you're the only person I know who will understand. I've had normal bowel movements for two weeks. I feel like it's a fucking banner event in my life. It really, it really influences your quality of life. And I have been, I'm, I'm living in a 55 plus um, neighborhood now because my partner is over 55. And it is amazing to me how much what's going on with your poop affects your ability to live the way you want to live. I mean, it's a real problem when you can't go more than 10 feet from the toilet. I went to visit my sister in the Dominican Republic in the middle of a flare. And I did, it didn't occur to me to tell her, like, at this point, I'm going to the bathroom like 10, 12 times a day. And I was getting nutrient deficiencies because Get serious. Of course, I didn't absorb anything in that amount of time. <laughs> I ate it and then it came out. Um, but it didn't occur to me. She had mentioned that sometimes there's no running water and I didn't get it. I was like, oh, well, then I bet you have a bucket um, full of water or you filled the tub or whatever. Oh, she was so upset with me. She's like, oh my God, how are we going to wash this? How are we going to do that? You're taking all the water. She called our mom and was like, tell you what's not going to the bathroom. Like, what do you want me to do about this? It really, and then it made me wonder if you're living in a country where you don't have running water all day and you have Graves' disease and you're in a flare, holy moly, how do you deal with that? And then, yeah, just bowel movements, Getting them normalized, very important. So when people come in with GI issues, it really usually is messing with their life. Like you see those commercials for medication for IBS or for Crohn's, and you see sometimes people enjoying social situations. Well, can you do that? Can you go on a date when you know you're going to have to go to the toilet so many times 
and that you're not going to be able to be dainty about it. Like that really changes the decisions you make about where you're going to go and what you're going to do. Yeah. And it's nothing in my youth prepared me for having this many conversations about poop. (laughs) I grew up thinking this was not a conversation adults had. (laughs) When you get any type of GI disorder, holy smoke, it just, it can, it can take over your life. And nutritionally, all of a sudden, like, mine were off for a very long time, and I actually have permanent loss of smell and taste because of nutrition deficiencies. Wow. And nobody believed that somebody in a bigger body could have nutrition deficiencies, and it took eight and a half years to get testing that I kept asking for. My goodness. So there, wow. there's a lot of that assumption um and one assumption i wanted to go back on before before we wrap up because i am trying to to stay on time is you talk about when you were in school they had one box with like this is what black people eat food is very cultural it's a way we connect it's a way we celebrate um and you know you brought up that you have clients who come in who are afraid to eat certain types of food and so many diets are very geared towards white upper class american like we have made corn a bad thing we've made all carbs a bad thing uh, beans like we're just saying all of this has to go because it's not clean eating so how do you start having conversations with people because like you said most bigger body people come in and we have read everything from south beach to atkins to paleo to all of this bullshit yes and say it's okay especially if what you're eating is part of how you connect with people. Right. I I just had to accept that when you get that uh, look from your client, like, are you sure about that? Do you really know? Nah. But that might be true for some people, but not for me. Um, to just let them not believe it <laughs> for as long as they don't believe it and keep circling around to it and trying to give exercises that will build evidence for them that it really can be true and asking them to question whether or not they're comfortable with the way eating has been framed for them reminding them i know people don't like to hear about their mortality but it's like you do know that despite all of the marketing that makes it sound like there's something you could do to live forever that's not true what is the point? Like, why are you actually here? Do you want to experience any pleasure while you're here? Because food can be a wonderful source of pleasure. Is that one of our goals? Could that be one of our goals? Like, do you want to experience pleasure around food again? Because we can work that in with whatever other health motivated goals you have, you know, like, Do you even want to try that? Do you want to circle back to that later? Like I try to put it out there, but then get the person's consent because what they're comfortable with is what matters. And then you have to remember that it usually took people years to get as traumatized as they are uh, in general. So we can't really expect for people to come into any therapeutic situation and like instantly be healed. And like the healing process to my chagrin, right? 
it's never really done because you go out in the world and people are going to continue to feed you this harmful messaging. Like, especially, I hear this all the time from clients, especially if their body size is not considered acceptable to their immediate family, that they'll start trying to be more liberal around food and open themselves up to stuff. And if their family sees them eating something that they don't consider acceptable for someone of their size, it becomes this whole thing. If this family sees them eating, drinking like, let's say whole fat dairy, right? Because for a lot of people, they don't get sated. They don't feel satisfied with skin. And if what you're going to do overall is just continue and continue to feel unsatisfied and constantly be suffering, honestly, because nothing has hit the spot, well, then I say that's not for you. And then you should have the whole fat one. And there are definitely benefits to having the full fat one. Your body can't absorb a lot of nutrients. Like some vitamins are fat soluble. And so when you take them in, it needs to come with some fat. So it's like, that is okay. That is okay. It doesn't need to be demonized. Carbs are necessary for your body. Fat's necessary. Protein is necessary. All of them are. But it seems like for some reason, the only big nutrient that doesn't get demonized is like protein seems to always be in style, but you know, there've been periods in the eighties when nobody wanted fat, anything. And then what they do when they take fat out of products typically is add more sugar, which can really send you on this roller coaster of not being satisfied. So honestly, a lot of times when clients are really trying to make progress, they find that they have to first create a supportive bubble for themselves or to focus on their boundary setting skills, which most of us weren't taught any. I know I wasn't taught any. Well, maybe a little bit, but not much. Like maybe boundaries for strangers and weirdo, creeper, cishet dudes, but I wasn't taught that it was ever okay to tell my mom no. <laughs> so Setting boundaries with parents can be like physically painful and try and explain to them, like, I might know a little bit more about this than you. Like some of us will never be able to say those words. The best we can do is probably like, oh, I'm just trying something or like, uh, the doctor said so, or, you know, whatever you have to come up with. But sometimes we have to spend time coming up with that strategy. Like, how are we going to push back against everyone around you being uncomfortable with the way you are growing and expanding and getting comfortable with food. And what if you're, you come to the conclusion that you don't want your body size to change at all, but your family's not comfortable with that? What is that going to look like? How are we going to deal with that? Are you going to have to reduce how much time you spend around them? Because honestly, sometimes that's what it comes down to. Usually if it comes down to that, the family is causing the person distress in other ways unrelated to food, you know, but it, it can really require some major changes. And I think everybody who's in a helping profession has to accept that not everybody has a bandwidth for healing work at different points in their life. Someone may disappear and you thought things were going good. Maybe they just don't have the bandwidth for it. And there's other fish that have to be fried at this point. And that's okay too, because we're not here to save anybody. Our clients are grown. Even when they're not grown, they're autonomous beings. And we are here to support as a guide 
but their body is taking the lead. And if their body says, I really don't have time for this right now, you know, I have other stressors, economic stressors, social stressors. I cannot do this right now. Well, guess what? Their body is correct. And you just have to let it go and let them know that whenever they want to come back, they can come back. And if they ignore that email, you also have to let that go. (laughs) I could talk to you for hours. You are so chock full of information and knowledge and it's so refreshing to talk to a dietitian who's actually done a lot of this liberation work and you've put together a phenomenal team looking at your sites and stuff. Oh, so thank you. Our lis- if our listeners want to find you, find your blog, find your team, connect, plug all your sites. So check me out at DaliaKinsey.com. That's D-A-L-I-A-K-I-N-S-E-Y. Uh, even if you don't want anything for you, like See if work wants to bring in somebody to do a lecture because I totally love doing workshops. Uh, Also, if you would like to just start thinking about trying to reimagine your relationship with food, I have a neat free bundle on the site that has a little bit of a meditation and a guide about other things that sometimes feel like hunger that might not be hunger, even though it's totally okay to eat if you're not hungry. That's a normal thing that humans do all the time. That's hunger is not the only reason to eat, period. Um, and aside from that, YouTube. So it's youtube.com slash Dahlia Kinsey. I'm trying to build up a library there. It's excellent. And listeners will have all of those links as well as more on our site. Thank you so much for being on the show. It was a wonderful chance to talk. And um, yeah, listener, please reach out, look at, Look at Dahlia's stuff. It is a phenomenal resource for folks out there. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fat Chicks on Top. Please like, subscribe, and review our podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on. If we like your review, we may even read it online. This has been an Auntie Vice production. Producer and host, Rebecca Blanton. Audio production by Sharon Smith. Music by David Manga. And more music by Sharon Smith. For more information about Fat Chicks on Top, please visit our website for all things Fat Chicks at fatchicksontop.com.